Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy Bank Holiday Monday! Well, people might be listening on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday or Sunday. I am convinced that the second a new episode of our podcast drops into people's feeds... Maybe that's true. ...they're on it straight away. They drop everything to listen. Feeds being the operative word as far as this interview is concerned. That's right, because we are talking to... How how would you describe her? I would say she is culinary royalty. Let me ask you something. You always say culinary. I've only ever heard other people say culinary. (laughs) I'm just interested. What's what? What is that? Who's in the right? I mean, the way you put it. You know, I've only ever heard people say X. You say Y. Who do you think is right? Yes, but also I think oh, Ed knocks around with posh people and educated people. He's probably Uh, he's probably right. I don't know really. I don't know really. But you must frequently hear it pronounced the other way and think, no, I'm digging my heels in here. Not sure I really hear it. Culinary, culinary. Mm, yeah. probably, you're probably right. Anyway, we are talking to Fuchsia Dunlop, who is, I would say, one of the leading authors on Chinese food. And honestly, I love Chinese food. And this came about because you went bothering Fuchsia about some dish you were trying to cook. Mushu chicken, yeah, the famous Mushu chicken. And I emailed Fuchsia about it and she wrote back and she gave me advice. And then she's got a new book coming out at the end of August, which is a great Really interesting read about the history and nature of Chinese cooking. And uh, I wanted to get some cooking tips, restaurant tips. And so we decided to have Fuchsia on. Yeah, and she's so interesting. Uh, She's got a background in food writing and as a chef. And in her 20s, she moved to China to study. And since then, really, her career has been a love letter to Chinese cuisine. So she has some great stories. Just about the way Chinese food took off in the UK, how it different from the Chinese food that she makes. I use her book, Every Grain of Rice, and her new book is called Invitation to a Banquet, The Story of Chinese Food. It's out on the 31st of August. Here's Fuchsia. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I'm delighted to say that we have in our Reasons to be Cheerful Zoom, Fuchsia Dunlop. 
Fuchsia has written a book called Invitation to a Banquet, the Story of Chinese Food. She was the first Westerner to train as a chef at the Sichuan Higher Institute of Cuisine. She's been researching and cooking Chinese food for some 30 years. She became my consultant on my Mushu chicken recipe. Fuchsia, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Where to start? Can I just start with you You working your contacts to get help with cooking a dish? How, how often does this happen to you, Fuchsia, that people from real life start tapping you up for your know-how? Well, it happens very often that people, I mean, usually asking for restaurant recommendations. Like I went to a party at the weekend and, um, you know, I had two people getting out their phones and taking down lists of restaurant recommendations. <laughs> and I get SOSs also from people I know, um, you know, I'm here, where can I have dinner? So I should explain for those who didn't remember this, because I did mention it on the podcast, that when I was a child, I lived in Boston at the age of seven. And it was an absolutely enormous treat for us to go to a restaurant called the Hunan Restaurant, which was somewhere in a suburb of Boston. I think it was maybe Watertown or somewhere. And we'd go to this restaurant and we would have a recipe called Mushu Chicken, which was basically chicken with various bamboo shoots and other things. And we would wrap it in a pancake. And I just thought this was the best thing ever. I suddenly decided, I mean, as Jeff will know better than future, my cooking record with my family is mixed. And I decided Mushu chicken was maybe the answer. And I can honestly, and then I contacted Fuchsia for um, some advice because I had her fantastic cookery book, Every Grain of Rice. And, and I can honestly say Mushu chicken has been the biggest hit of anything I've ever cooked for my kids and Justine. They love Mushu chicken. That's great. And did you know what he was talking about straight away? Oh, yes, I know the dish very well, yes. But it's funny, it's not very popular in British Chinese restaurants at all. I mean, I think maybe some used to do it, but you don't really see it these days. But it's interesting that Chinese cuisine enters local markets and then evolves into something according to local talents that is, isn't uniform the world over. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I remember when I went to Australia for the first time, all the restaurants in Sydney had a sweet dish of pancakes wrapped around mango and whipped cream, which is, <laughs> um, and that seems to be the equivalent of crispy duck in London, which again is a very London version of a sort of combination of Sichuanese crispy duck with Peking duck, um, you know, the method of eating it. There's so many things to talk to you about, Future. I think maybe one place to start is talk to us about your journey of ending up being this Chinese chef, writing about Chinese food. How did this happen? Well, so I've always loved eating and cooking more than anything. And I remember when I was 11, telling a middle school teacher that I wanted to be a chef when I grew up. My mother is a great cook, and um, she was a teacher of English as a foreign language in Oxford when I was growing up. And our house was always filled with people from all over the world. So living with us at various times, we had a Japanese girl, we had Spaniards, various Turks, Italians. And, um, and my parents also had friends from all over the place. And all these people would come over and cook and share food, and my mother would go on cooking their recipes. So I, I had a very unusual gastronomic upbringing for, you know, 1970s England, I think. And then um, I went to China originally as a graduate student. I went to Sichuan University. What did you study at university? In English literature. Right. 
And I got interested in China through a sort of sub-editing job, um, went backpacking there, got interested. And then I started Mandarin evening classes and eventually got this British Council scholarship. And the reason I chose Sichuan, you know, I came up with all these very convincing academic reasons, but I was well aware that it was one of the sort of great gastronomic centers of China. And it had this famously delicious cuisine, which I'd sampled on a sort of trip the year before. So I went to Sichuan and the food was just incredible. And it was so much better, fresher, more delicious, more exciting than any Chinese food that I've had before. You know, I grew up with the usual Cantonese derived um, Chinese takeaway food, which I loved. But um, but then Sichuan was something completely different. And so I just started doing something which I'd done since I was a teenager, really, which was take notes about food, learn recipes. And then I... I persuaded um, some the bosses of local restaurants to let me into their kitchens just just because I love cooking and I was curious. So it started like that. And then a friend and I heard about this famous Sichuan cooking school. So we just cycled over there one day and said, please, can we (laughs) study here? So they laid on a few private classes and they thought it was quite funny because there were very few foreigners at that time in Chengdu. So there was something for them rather fun and interesting about these two foreign students wanting to learn Sichuanese cooking. And then after I finished at the university, I went back there just to say hello to my teachers and with the idea that, you know, perhaps they would let me drop in from time to time to watch a demo. And they said, well, we have this professional chef's training course starting for a few months. Amazing. Would you like to join? So I just said yes immediately. And they gave me a cleaver. They gave me some chef's whites. And then that was it. And it was really just inspiring and fun and delicious. And how long were you sort of seen as, as an oddity for? Well, I think I still am, really, because, I mean, when I go to China now, I am usually... Um, I'm very often the only foreigner with, you know, surrounded by chefs. I'm also usually the only woman because most chefs are men. Really <laughs> surprised that there's this English woman who not only speaks Mandarin, but also I can talk at a professional level about food because that's my special area. So it's all, I mean, I, I think it's still, you know, it's still quite a funny thing to be doing. You talk about in the introduction to your book, the massive rise in Chinese food in the UK, but a particular type of Chinese food. You've got this statistic, which I found absolutely jaw-dropping, which is in 1951, there had only been 36 Chinese restaurant proprietors and managers in the country, in the UK. By the early 70s, there were an estimated 12,000 takeaways and 3,000 eating restaurants. So this was there was this extraordinary upsurge uh, of a wave of Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong and elsewhere, I think. Um but it was a particular type of Chinese food and uh, which Chinese people were slightly contemptuous of. Talk to us a little bit about that. Almost all the early Chinese immigrants to both Britain and America were from the Cantonese south of China. So that's one particular region. And also they, they weren't necessarily chefs. So a lot of takeaways were um, sort of opened and staffed by immigrants from the south, many of whom had been farmers who needed to make a living And they were living in predominantly white communities, um, not in Chinatowns, but having the takeaway in a small town or something and catering for British people who at that time, you know, in the 70s, were not really used to to eating such a range of different um, foreign cuisines. 
I mean, my mother remembers when she was young that Chinese food seemed really exciting and exotic and it was very affordable and you could get these set menus of chop suey and lychees in syrup. So everyone loved it. Um, and it was, you know, it worked, but it wasn't really representative either of what these Cantonese immigrants ate themselves or of this enormous country, this enormous, diverse, extremely gastronomically obsessed country that is China. Chinese food now is becoming more representative of what Chinese people actually eat, partly because there are so many Chinese people now living in, in British cities who come from all over China. And for example, they love eating Sichuanese food because that's what's very trendy in China. And so they've brought a sort of a new market for Chinese restaurants who no longer have to cater for Westerners who just want sweet and sour pork. They can, you know, they can cook proper Chinese food on Chinese terms. One thing that's very striking about the book is the way you talk about the way food and medicine in China are in a way not exactly inseparable, but connected. And you talk about, I think it's an eye infection that you get um, and the way you treat this eye infection, which is with a certain type of Chinese food. In China, food and medicine have been totally, totally um, entwined together for more than 2,000 years. The earliest, um, you know, written Chinese recipes are actually prescriptions for tonic foods, which were found in a, in a Han Dynasty tomb in Hunan. Um, and they date back to about the, is it the third or second century BC? And really all through Chinese recorded history, um, diet has been seen as the sort of fundamental means of um, maintaining and establishing good health and curing disease with medicine as a sort of, or with drugs as a secondary tool, if you like. So for a foreigner going to live in China, one thing that is so striking is that people talk about food as medicine all the time. So if someone is um, a little unwell or if the weather is a certain way, um, people will recommend certain foods to either um, restore balance in the body or to combat the rigours of the climate. So, for example, in Sichuan, because it's very humid, you're supposed to eat lots of heating, drying foods like um, chilies and Sichuan pepper to drive out sweat and dampness and restore equilibrium and therefore good health. And what you mentioned was, yes, it was a not an eye infection, but an inf inflammation of my eyeball. Yeah. So I, I had a very painful eye. I went to see my GP and she sent me immediately to the emergency clinic of the London Eye Hospital. And um, they did all these tests and they, they said it wasn't an infection, but I had systemic inflammation. And they wanted to prescribe all these drugs like anti-inflammatories for a couple of weeks if they didn't work steroids and then steroids in my eye you know, quite full on. And just when I was in the room with the consultant, I just, I, I just remembered that I'd been living very unhealthily. I'd been burning the candle at both ends. I was really exhausted. I'd been eating lots of very rich food that the Chinese would consider heating in terms of the heating, cooling scale of Chinese medicine. And that in Chinese terms, the way I'd been living recently was guaranteed to produce symptoms of 
um, what they call in Chinese Shanghuo, which means sort of rising heat. And I thought, well, you know, why don't I try using Chinese dietary therapy to deal with this? So obviously I didn't want to damage my eye because I had this, you know, really serious problem with my eye. So I asked the consultant and said, would it be okay to not stop the drugs, but could I just try something else? And she said, well, if it gets any worse, you take the drugs immediately. You can have 48 hours. So I got all the drugs from the pharmacy and I went home via a Chinese supermarket and I got various Chinese foods which I knew were were cooling. So things like bitter melon, chrysanthemum tea. Um, And I went home and I cancelled all my social plans and I I sort of gave up chocolate, cheese, fried foods, and I made Chinese soups and had steamed and boiled foods with these cooling ingredients. And literally within 24 hours, I was getting better. I only used the drops for two days and then phased it out. And I never took any of the oral drugs. So I went back to the clinic the following week and they couldn't believe it that I was fine. So it was just a rather interesting experiment because, you know, I was on the brink of, of having quite serious medication, possibly for some time, and I was able to avoid it almost completely. Who knows? That's just one example. But I, I should say that in general, you know, it's not a question of believing it or not believing it. But as a practice, it just seems to, to kind of be very beneficial to, to sort of see diet as being something that if things are not too extreme, to actually help get better. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, I want to talk about some of your favorite ingredients. And I feel like we need to talk about rice because you talk about rice in the book and the role of very plain boiled uh, rice. And also the soya bean, because you also say the soya bean represents a defining difference between East Asian and Western culinary cultures. Yes. Well, rice. And so the first thing to say is that there's very much a north-south divide in China. So the north is mainly wheat eating. And there you have this huge range of dumplings, flatbreads, um, noodly foods, particularly as staple foods. So rice is rather secondary. But across the south of China, rice is the staple grain. I was educated in Sichuan in the south, and I've sort of spent more time in rice-eating country. Foreigners, when they eat Chinese food, they always go for the exciting rice, like the egg fried rice or the fried rice with Yangzhou fried rice with little bits of delicious stuff in it. And um, this is all very well. But the purpose of rice in most Chinese meals is as a sort of um, plain counterbalance to all these deliciously flavoured dishes. So most typically it is cooked very simply. Um, So in the countryside, it was parboiled and then steamed 
or cooked with the absorption method when you add some liquid, let it boil away, and then you cook it very slowly so you get a golden crust, rather like the Persian tadik. So that's pot called potsticker rice. But the rice is unseasoned, not even any salt in it. So you use your dishes to season the rice. So that's why some people say, oh, Chinese food is too salty. Well, it is. It's meant to salt the rice. You know, it's the seasoning. And the soya bean? Yeah, soybeans are really interesting. So um, the Chinese domesticated the soybean, I think about 3,000 years ago. In the beginning, they used to just boil it up into a pretty unattractive sort of gruel. So it's not a very attractive ingredient. But um, pretty early on, they um, learned how to ferment soybeans, which made them digestible and brought out all these delicious umami flavours but no one in the West ever fermented beans. You know, we had lentils, we had beans, but we just ate them as beans. <laughs> the other thing, of course, is that the soybean is an extremely rich source of plant protein, and it has all the amino acids we need in the right proportion for human absorption. So it's also very nutritious. And again, at some point, not quite clear when, the Chinese worked out how to make dofu, tofu, by soaking dried beans, by grinding them between the millstones they use to make flour from wheat, and then curdling the soy milk with various, you know, mineral salts or, you know, various things um, to make curds, a bit like cheese, right? Um, and then tofu then became this incredibly nutritious, inexpensive vegetarian food. It helped to shape the Chinese diet, which until recently was one in which most people, apart from the rich, didn't eat much meat. They ate mainly vegetables with fish in the South. And the soybean made this possible because it provided the nutrition, the amazing flavors as well to make a vegetarian diet palatable. And it also, as I, as I said in the book, it helped to shape the Chinese landscape because they just don't have pasture lands. But you don't have, like we do in England, great fields full of cows. <laughs> Actually, soy milk provided the same nutrition, but much more economically, because instead of growing all this food to feed to animals to make meat and milk, you just eat the bean. Do you want to ask Fuchsia about your various woes with tofu? Oh, yeah, Fuchsia, I've had some woes with tofu. Oh, no, what? I've had a sort of rubbery tofu experience. I've had a sort of concrete tofu experience, but I tried to do baked tofu with broccoli. That was my most recent. So I, I really sort of fell off the tofu horse recently. Right. I have a tendency to overcook things. And I don't know, is there an art to cooking tofu properly? Is there a quick trick? Well, I think there are many, but I think you need to be using good Chinese cookbooks, Ed. <laughs> I think that's good advice. Talk to us about how vocabulary shapes it, because in the book, like you have all these different words for mouthfeel. There, there is a word, I think, that uh, you say the closest thing is the inside of a crumpet. <laughs> yeah, so I tried to sort of draw up a lexicon of texture words because texture and kogan, literally mouthfeel, is so important to Chinese people. So if you talk to someone Chinese about a dish and what it's like, they will almost invariably not just mention the flavour, they'll mention what it feels like. And the Chinese generally um, appreciate a much greater range of textures than Westerners do. So they like all the same things that Westerners do, like crisp 
crisp fried things and, you know, creamy things and soft things. But they also like these quite contradictory and resistant mouthfeels. So sort of slippery, slithery, slightly springy, rubbery textures are all part of the fun of eating. When you're learning to cook like this, then vocabulary perhaps becomes much more important than it would uh, learning other types of cuisine because it's words that you don't have direct equivalents for. Oh, totally, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a measure of the sophistication of a culinary culture, its vocabulary. So, for example, the French have a huge vocabulary of words for different sorts of sauce, different cooking methods, um, all kinds of culinary concepts that in English we didn't have. So we just nicked them all, like restaurant, menu, chef, hollandaise, mayonnaise, sauté, they're all from French, right? And Chinese is similarly complex. So there are just so many different Chinese characters for different cooking methods that require a whole paragraph in English to explain, and also for different mouthfeels. So, and I, the, the use of crumpet was I was trying to illustrate these terms in ways that would resonate for people. Now, I have to ask you, I think you think of it as an annoying question, I understand why, because you, you said at the beginning of the book, people are often asking you about the most disgusting thing you've ever eaten. Maybe some of this is about things that people in China might eat that we wouldn't eat here for various reasons. Talk to us about this issue. Yeah, well, I think there's always been this um, sort of amazement by foreign observers at the the sheer range and diversity of the ingredients eaten in China. And there is that stereotype of the Chinese eat everything. And it's usually framed very negatively. So I think the typical Western view has always been, oh, Chinese, they were very poor, so they would just eat anything, you know? And I think this is incredibly misleading because on the one hand, um, most agrarian cultures of the past, people would, you know, if they killed a pig, for example, they would eat most parts of it to make the most of it for economic reasons. And certainly, you know, my grandparents' generation here in England, they ate a greater range of for example, offal than people typically do now. Apart from that, and also, you know, this huge knowledge of um, wild plants um, that could be eaten in times of famine was a great resource, um, you know, for farmers in China. There's also this very great adventurousness about eating at the elite end of the spectrum. So, um, you know, in ancient China, you know, 2000 years ago, um, people were eating things like bear's paws as being the greatest exotica. You know, they loved eating surprising, rare, extraordinary ingredients for the thrill of it, you know? And do you have a very high tolerance for what you eat? Oh, yeah, I eat everything, really. I mean, I feel that the Chinese really understand good food. It's a real gastronomic culture. They've been thinking deeply about it, really enjoying the pleasures of the table for more than 2,000 years. And so if something is considered a Chinese delicacy, you know, I'm interested <laughs> because I think they know more than a typical English person what good food is. And, and also, I think that because over many years, I have grown to really appreciate texture. So now I can really enjoy eating a duck's tongue. You know, it's fiddly, it's small, there's no meat on it. But once you 
get involved in the game of texture and mouthfeel and using your tongue and your teeth and, you know, it's just part of the fun of eating, then that expands all the possibilities. And so I think one of the things that I sort of argue in the book is that I think it's time to reframe this stereotype of the Chinese eating everything in a more positive sense because it's adventurous, it's romantic, it's also resourceful. Using ingredients that other people overlook is something we're all going to have to do in a world stricken by the climate crisis. I should add that another reason that people have a negative idea is the consumption of things like shark's fin that in the contemporary world have become very questionable because they are now in critically endangered for reasons not only of the Chinese eating them, but also fishing with great trawlers and, you know, this kind of thing. So I think that, um, you know, certainly there are negative aspects at the only the very elite end of people eating things like shark's fins. But on the one hand, you know, we're all eating, most of us, apart from people like Jeff, who are vegetarian, unsustainably anyway. So we all need to start interrogating our diets for environmental reasons. But beyond this kind of seamy side of Chinese gastronomy, there's this whole world of joyful, adventurous, resourceful eating. And I think that that's, that's something we can all learn from. Can we talk about MSG quickly? Sure. This MSG thing is so funny. My aunt, love her, 84, 85, living in New York, she would always say when I was going to eat, you know, taken out to these restaurants, oh, I'm really worried about MSG, monosodium glutamate. It was a constant thing. Where did that panic come from? Well, so there was this article in the New England Journal of Medicine which coined the phrase Chinese restaurant syndrome. And the author complained that every time he ate Chinese food, he had a dry mouth and palpitations and a headache. And for some reason, although they didn't say it in those days, but it kind of went viral in a non-internet way. And um, this idea of Chinese restaurant syndrome and MSG being very toxic and dangerous just took off. But the curious thing about this is that scientists have not come up with any evidence that it's harmful. And MSG actually is a, is a compound, you know, a chemical compound in a way like salt that also occurs naturally in things like kelp seaweed um, and in Parmesan cheese and other foods that most people consider in the West consider perfectly healthy and normal and delicious. But so in 1908, this Japanese scientist isolated the delicious compound in kelp seaweed, which was MSG. And that led to the manufacture commercially, industrially of MSG. And it really took off as a seasoning in East Asian countries, but not in the West. And I think there's a real cultural difference here that um, in the West, MSG is only used in packaged food and junk food. Like you don't get good chefs by and large using MSG in their cooking. But in China, it's it's mainly regarded as a normal sort of seasoning, which adds a sort of sparkly umami flavor to some dishes. And I think that restaurants in China often overuse it. So if you're used to having MSG in everything you eat, then you get bored with plain food without MSG. And I think that's a real pity. Also, because I'm writing recipes you know, for Westerners, I mean, actually Chinese people use them funnily enough too, but I mean, the intention was to write for Westerners and and I want to show people the best of Chinese food. And I think MSG would sort of get in the way of that for for a Western audience. 
you describe in the book as um, one of your proud life achievements is being able to order well in a Chinese restaurant. Jeff, don't you think we need this tip? Yes, we do. Yeah, you, you said that you get sick of people asking you for restaurant recommendations. We're going to go a step further and we're going to ask you so exactly on, what us. to order. <laughs> what should Ed order? The problem is there isn't one answer. But the most important principles are variety and balance. And the worst thing you can do in a Chinese restaurant is go with a group of friends and everyone just order the dish they fancy. Because then you're pretty much guaranteed to get a terribly uncoordinated menu. Sharing is really important. Yeah. But there needs to be some kind of consensus then. Well, yeah, because you don't want to have three... If you say you've got five people and you're ordering five dishes and you're going to share them with rice, you don't want to have three chicken dishes. You don't want to have three things that are all deep fried or that are all in a sweet and sour sauce. The whole point is that every dish is different so that you have this very exciting variety. So you can have a mouthful of this and then that and then that. And it never becomes boring. You know, if I'm ordering a Chinese meal, I will think about the main ingredient. So have a variety. So have, if you have a chicken dish, then maybe also have a fish, some vegetables, some tofu, something like that. And also flavours. So don't have more than one sweet and sour dish. You know, if you have one sweet and sour, then get something that is mala, spicy, numbing and hot. Get something maybe with black beans. If you're getting one dish of red braised pork, which is dark in colour because of the soy sauce, which is quite rich, which is cut in big chunks, which is pork, then, you know, why not get a very light stir fried green vegetable with a bit of ginger or something? And a soup. <laughs> anyway, and, and so it's, it's just a way of thinking about it. We'll, we'll go together. And I have to say that it requires a little bit of experience, but it's easier now because a lot of Chinese restaurants have picture menus. So you can see, like you can just see. You don't want every dish on the table to be bright red because it's all made with chilies. You know, just think what would be, what would be a nice variety? So you don't labour the palate. You don't become bored. It just goes on being thrilling with every mouthful. Let's end on what's your reason to be cheerful? I'm sure you've got so many about your love of of Chinese culinary culture, Fuchsia. Well, the reason to be cheerful about Chinese food is that you can have devastating pleasure and good health in the same thing. So if if you cook proper Chinese food with a bit of balance, it can be the most delicious food you've ever tasted and make you feel really good. And, you know, what could be more cheering than that, really? Good note to end on. Absolutely. Fuchsia Dunlop, uh, the book is Invitation to a Banquet, the story of Chinese food. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your mushu advice. I will keep taking uh, the tips and Jeff and I will go to a Chinese restaurant, Jeff, yes, and and order. With perfect balance. With perfect balance. And good luck with the tofu. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Thank you for listening to this summer cheerful conversation. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, Ed Seed, composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And this has been... Summer Lovin'. Reasons to be cheerful. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.